There we go. Sorry. Uh, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in Joshua, and I've missed it. You know, we had church retreats. Uh, Tom was speaking. We had a picnic on the lake. And I got a lot of pent-up energy to preach. Um, you know, <laughs> tonight you may see that the sermon, I've titled it, uh, The King with a Small K. And I've partnered it with Romans chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter 13. If you're familiar with the rest of Romans 13, that's the passage that goes on saying things like, Give to Caesar that which is Caesar's, and all authority by God has been put in place. Uh, and if you remember last time we spoke about the book of Joshua, we were uh, in, in chapter 7, and there was this man named Achan, and Achan had done something that was not very good. And when they defeated Jericho, he took some of the plunder and he hid it underneath his tent, and he basically said, hey, it's, it's not a big deal, we'll just hide this under the tent and nothing will happen. And then when the whole conquest is over, we'll have all this riches and everything will be great. Well, as the story goes, the Israelites go up to this city called Ai, Ai, and, then, and they lose this battle, and everyone's disheartened, and God says, no, you must get the sin out of your camp. You must expel the sin from your land. And we talked about the power that sin can have in our lives, the individual choices we make, and how in a similar way we, we must get it out of our lives. That, that, that God doesn't, just because we are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean that sin is okay or that it's safe. God cares. And tonight we're going to talk about sin, but it's going to be different. You know, one of, one of my favorite things about learning German is that all nouns are capitalized. And so in a sentence, it's very easy for me to figure out the order. You know, the verb is generally second, and then you have nouns that are capitalized, and it, it, it's not so bad. But the problem with, with English, and I'm assuming for German speakers learning English, this would be uh, something different to learn, is that we only capitalize what we call proper nouns, right? Person, place, and thing. And so the reason I titled it the king small k is because this king we're going to talk about tonight is not really the king. He just thinks he's a king, but he's not the king. And, and the bigger idea we're talking about is think about sin in two different ways, there's sin with a small s, which is the little stuff we do. I tell a little lie, do something you shouldn't do, say a harsh word to someone. But then there's sin with a capital S. And what I mean by that is the condition of sin. The, the, the condition that all of humanity is sort of trapped under. And I've used this example before. Um, you know, some people will argue that, no, humanity is inherently good and that we learn evil. Um, and anyone who's had a two-year-old knows that's just not true. I have enough little cousins and have babysat enough to know that, that, that small children are, can be just absolute monsters. And you look at them and you think, where did this come from? It's the most perfect example I can think of for the condition of sin that all humanity is under. And so that's what we're talking about, the capital S, big sin, the condition of humanity. So back to our story of Joshua. You know, I lamented a couple of weeks ago as well that, that, that God has been doing these great things for the people, and he's been doing these miraculous victories, and we haven't had any sort of uh, things like war movies. You remember me talking about that? There hasn't been any great plans. There hasn't been any great battles. You know, with Jericho, they just sort of walked around marching and blowing their trumpets, and the walls fell down. It's not this great military conquest that we were, we were promised. Well, so in chapter 8, it actually happens. 
God says, okay, Joshua, here's what you're going to do. Now that you've expelled the sin, now that you've gotten it out, here's how we're going to play it. We're going to take the whole army, not just part of it like last time. We're going to take the whole army. And we're going to take the whole army, but what you're going to do, it's, it's actually, if you've ever seen Braveheart, it's basically the same thing. You're going to take half of the army, and you're going to hide them. And then you're going to go into battle, and you're going to pretend to retreat, and then they're going to be so prideful because they beat you before, they're going to all run out of their city after you, and then the rest of the army is going to come around behind them and trap them. And that's the plan, and that's actually what happens. If you read verses 1 through 17, this is what happens. The, the, the army comes up to the gates of the city, they start attacking and they retreat, and then everyone leaves the city to say, oh, let's go get the Israelites. And then the rest of the army comes around from behind them, and it says that they're surrounded on all sides. And Israel wins the army, or wins the war, excuse me. Uh, follow along with me, we're going to start reading in verse chapter 18 concerning this battle through uh, the end of the chapter to verse 29. This is uh, Joshua chapter 8. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Hold out toward I the javelin that is in your hand, for into your hand I will deliver the city. And so Joshua held out his javelin toward I, and as soon as he did this, the men, did, the men in the ambush rose quickly from their position and rushed forward. They entered, the, excuse me, they entered the city and captured it and quickly set it on fire. The men of I looked back and saw the smoke of the city rising against the sky, but they had no chance to escape in any direction. For the Israelites who had been fleeing toward the desert had turned back against their pursuers. For when Joshua and all Israel saw the ambush had taken the city and that smoke was going up from the city, they turned around and attacked the men from Ai. The men of the ambush also came out of the city against them so that they were caught in the middle with Israelites on both sides. Israel cut them down, leaving neither survivors nor fugitives. But when they took the king of Ai alive and brought him to Joshua... And when Israel had finished killing all the men of Ai in the fields and in the desert where they had chased them, and when every one of them had been put to the sword, all the Israelites returned to Ai and killed those who were in it. Twelve thousand men and women fell that day, all the people of Ai. For Joshua did not draw back the hand that held out his javelin until he had destroyed all who lived in Ai. But Israel did carry off for themselves the livestock and plunder of this city, as the Lord had instructed Joshua. And so Joshua burned I and made a permanent heap of ruins, a desolate place to this day. And then he hung the king of Ai on a tree and left him there until evening. At sunset, Joshua ordered them to take his body from the tree and throw it down at the entrance of the city gate. And they raised a large pile of rocks over it, which remains to this day. This too is the word of the Lord. You know, I... I intentionally changed my tone as I was reading that. Because, as I confessed before, you know, I, I, I like army movies. I like war movies. I like historical fiction. I like some of these things. But when I read this, it seems unsettling and dissatisfying. You know, eight, verses 18 to 23, the plan worked. The people of I were prideful. They came out of their city. And then verses 24 to 29, we have this aftermath, and, and you realize the bloody details of war. You know, I, it doesn't matter what you see or what you read. 
you know, if, you've, if, if any of your grandparents were veterans or, or uncles or anyone were veterans of any of the wars of the 20th century, you know that winning side, losing side, it doesn't matter. There's this pit in your stomach afterwards. And even though it all went according to plan, even though this is what God had ordained, it still seems odd that it makes us feel so unsettled. Why was this the plan? Why didn't God seek some sort of diplomatic solution? Why, why did it have to be 12,000 people? It's hard. It's violent. It's sad. You know, and, and what's amazing is if you keep reading on, there, there's, some, there's some good things. You know, if you keep reading on in verses 33 and 34, it talks about how there were sojourners or resident aliens living among them. That, that people actually left these Canaanite cities to join the Israelites. Like Rahab, you remember her? Rahab came and bowed before God and said, I want to worship your God and be like you. And, and even some people came and became part of the Israelites, but it still says that 12,000 people died that day. And it's hard for me. You know, there's, when we talk about kings, I want you to think about this passage. Go to the next slide. It should be a verse from Deuteronomy. Keep going. It should be in black. Yeah. It's a little hard to see, but, but I added it afterwards. That's why it's, it's, uh, it's hard to see. I did, forgot to change it to white. Sorry. But I'm going to read it, and this is what it says. It says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. See, notice in English the, the beauty of the two different capital letters. He is the God of everyone who thinks he's a God. He is the Lord of all who thinks they are lords. He is the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you giving them food and clothing, and you are to love those who are foreigners. For you yourselves are foreigners in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. This is way back before all of this stuff happened with the conquest, and God is telling his people, hey, listen, care for those people who join you. Care for those people who want to live among you and become like you. But, but, but remember that I am God. Remember that I am the Lord of lords. And, and I mentioned this before, but we must also remember in the ancient world, a man who presented himself as a king often presented himself as a deity as well. And if he wasn't a deity, he was a direct messenger of a deity and would say that he represented whatever pagan god his city worshipped. But it was still 12,000 people. <laughs> I want to remind you of something we also talked about a few weeks ago. See, this is the benefit of studying a, a book and, and multiple sequences of Scripture in a row. If we go back to before the battle ever started for Jericho, the commander of the Lord's army, when Jericho runs into him, or when Joshua runs into him, he says, hey, who are you for, us or our enemies? He says, neither. I'm for God, and I'm for holiness. And Joshua bows down and worships him. So, so remember, when we see a difficult passage like this, when we wonder about why did so many people have to die, that God is not necessarily lifting one people group over another. God is taking holiness, and God is taking that which is right and good and holding it over evil and that which is wrong. And with Achan, it was about specific sins, and God punished him and his family for their greed. But with the people of Ai and the people of Canaan, and as we talk about this, this whole military conquest... It was about the condition of sin among all of these people, the capital S. 
The result of sin in humanity is destruction. The result of unrepentant, un, uh, you know, un, there are people who don't care about their sin and people who live in a way that is outwardly disobedient and vulgar to God is destruction. And the reason it leaves such a pit in our stomach is because we know this is not the way it's supposed to be. We've known love, we've known kindness, we've known peace, and we wonder why people can't figure it out. And the reason people can't figure it out and the reason the world has so much trouble is because they are not bowing before the real king. God is the only king. When we read scripture, you know, there are very few things that I really get really fired up and and really play my pastor card about, right? We're not going to bow down to this. We're not going to change this. There's, there's, there's gray areas sometimes in theology. Well, I can understand your point. Yeah, maybe. Okay, good. Here there is none. I truly believe that God had ordained this and that this was good. And, and he has Joshua hold up a javelin, which is, if you remember, we talked about this in the winter. Um, when they were fighting the Amalekites in Exodus chapter 17, when Moses was holding up his staff, they would win the war. You know, this is just one generation later. They would have known the story. They would have heard it, and they would have been encouraged. And God says, this is from me. Let me show you this is from me. Joshua, hold up the javelin and hold it up. And as you hold it up, we will go in and we will have this victory in the name of God. And, and, And as I said, listen, I know it's hard and I get it. But I want to bring up a couple of things that sometimes we do in church. You know, there's a, there's a song that I always used to struggle with. Um, and it's okay. But it's, it's this song, it's called I Am a Friend of God. It was really popular about 10 years ago, 15 years ago, a contemporary worship song. And the chorus is just that, I am a friend of God, I am a friend of God, he calls me friend. And it's not bad. And we used to sing it in youth group and, and young people loved it and it was good. But it always sort of made me a little bit uncomfortable. But yes, yes, I am God's friend, and yes, but like the song we sang, you are like a friend and a brother even though you are my king. See, we need to remember that God is our king as well. And, and sometimes in the modern world, because we have so gotten so comfortable in the grace and cross of Christ, and, and so comfortable around our sin, and so comfortable around evil, that we just say, you know what, we're just going to take the good things from the Bible and just sort of Try not to deal with the really hard things. But isn't all of the Bible difficult? I mean, we forget that Jesus said to the people, hey, I'm going to come back one day. And, and I'm humble and a servant now, but I'm going to come back as a king. In Matthew 25, you can look this up. He says, I'm going to come back with all the angels. Okay. Now, the Bible's not clear about how many angels there are, but it's in the area of 100 million. 10,000 times 10,000, give or take. And, and when one person sees an angel in the Bible, what do they do? They collapse in terror. And Jesus says he's going to come back on his throne with all of his angels, and he's going to put the entire world before him and separate the sheep from the goats. And he's going to say to the sheep, come with me, you get it. And he's going to say to a large portion of people, hey, you, you missed it. The Bible's hard. <laughs> the Bible's full of tough stuff. 
You know, we love reading Paul's epistles about loving each other and caring for each other, but then we get to Revelation and we hear about the bowls of God's wrath and we say, well, that's not for me. We're just going to skip to the end, you know. I mean, look at Noah's Ark. This is a children's story and it is brutal. You know, we have to think about how serious this stuff is. You know, I mentioned earlier how much I love this church. And one of the reasons I love this church is it's a thinking church. And, and I know that we can do this together. Because you know how important this is. You know, we read Joshua and we read chapter 1 and 2 and we love be strong and courageous. Oh, be strong and courageous. I can do that. Hey, these people are evil and I had to judge them. Mm, I don't know about that. Makes me really uncomfortable. And another one. Um, a lot of people love the verse Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. It's a great verse. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. Um, <laughs> you know that was written to people that were living in, in exile as slaves. <laughs> you know, we take it and we say, "Yay, God has a good plan for me." God gave that to people who were living in 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 servitude under Babylonian rule that he actually says in Habakkuk that he raised up the Babylonians to judge Israel. It's a good verse, but when we look at the context, it's hard. You know, there's, a, there's an author I really like, uh, and some of his stuff's just okay, but he, I read this, and, and I loved it, and I wanted to share it with you. So I have another um, slide up here, and I think you can see it. He says basically this. No church can be the church if pastors and congregation are unwilling to speak hard truths to each other and to themselves. To think of the pastor at my job <laughs> as primarily a helping profession and the church, you all, as, a therapeutic, as chiefly a therapeutic community in the sense of guiding us to feel better about ourselves as opposed to giving us what we need to be healthy is a betrayal of the gospel and the church's mission. <laughs> we got to be willing to discuss do we still worship a God even though God said I'm going to kill these people because they're evil we have to be willing to stand up on truth and say not everyone is going to heaven there will be those who do not because of sin and because they live unrepentant lives brothers and sisters in Christ I love you but we are not here just to feel better about ourselves <laughs> there's there's, there's this term they use in, in, in therapy and, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs and the whole different thing we talk about in all these different fields. And there's this term of meeting felt needs. We think sometimes that the church exists so that we meet our felt needs. So, okay, I feel sad, you know, so we open up the Bible and, and we look up sadness. And, and, and I feel joyful, so we open up the Bible and we look up joy. And that's not inherently bad because you're in the Word and the Word is good. But the power of God as the king of the universe is so much more than just meeting your daily needs and emotions. The power of God who, who lives and dwells in each of us through the Holy Spirit, if we have confessed Christ as our Lord, is so much bigger than just making you feel good on a day-to-day -day basis. It is about being healthy. It is about giving exactly what we need from the power of the Spirit through our lives, not through just trying to cover things up when we feel uncomfortable. 
And I want to bring out one more point, and I take this on myself. I was sharing some of my sermon points with Jenna. Uh, she's in the U.S. right now, and, and she said, wow, that's, you're really putting yourself out there with this one. And I laughed, and I said, yeah, well, I've been running away from, from being a pastor a while, and I've shared this with you before, that I never thought I'd be a pastor. But when I look at this, and I see the city of Ai and what happened, I also see extreme failure of leadership. That at some point and in some way, the people trusted a a person or a leader or a king to lead them into what was best for them. And I, we don't have the story. We don't know. But I look at the story of Jonah and Nineveh and how God spared them and how God loved them. And I am fairly certain that God wouldn't have done this on a whim, that God probably gave the king of Ai and the people of these cities and the Canaanite people many chances. We know that Rahab knew the name of God. We know that the Canaanites were aware of the name of God, Yahweh. We know they're descendants of Noah. We know at some point they turned away from God voluntarily. And I thought about this idea of authority and how important it is. How important good godly leadership is that leads a community and a group of people into holiness rather than sin. You, know, you think about authority in the world. How silly is the idea of authority? You know, all of these people around the world are building up their authority on worldly accomplishments or how they were born. You know, their dad was an important person, so now they have authority. What, what qualifies you for that? You know, that wars have been fought over where people were born. How many of you had any choice of what culture and what community and what city and what state and what nationality you were born into? You know, and yet we claim these things so strongly and so staunchly, and and we try to claim some sort of authority from it. But remember, God wants holiness above all. And as men and women, we cannot ever, ever have the ultimate authority. This is, you know, talk, we're going to break down the Bible really simply. Genesis 1, God creates everything and it's good. And then Adam and Eve decide that the one thing, and I've shared this with you before, so I'm going to say it again because it's so important. The one thing God took for himself was what? The knowledge of good and evil. That which is right and that which is wrong. The ability to discern right from wrong. And Adam and Eve said, no, that's not enough. We want that. So we're going to take it. And ever since then, man has thought, man as in men and women, not just men. It's your fault too. Um, Well, because Eve ate. Anyways, so... Ever since then, though, what has human beings tried to do? We know better than God. We know good, and we know evil, and we know what is best, and so we're going to do what is best. And so in the Tower of Babel, we're going to build a tower, and we're going to go up to God and see what God is doing. And so we're going to go, and we're going to have these kingdoms, and we're going to have these these false gods, and we're going to do what we think is best. Moses, you've been on the mountain too long. We're going to make a golden calf because we think that is best. We think that is good. No! And in the Old Testament, you have these kings and you have these rulers who claim to be gods who said, I know better than God. I know what is right and I know what is wrong and we want nothing to do with Yahweh. You know, I'll never forget this. Years ago, um, I came to Europe on a trip when I was still living in the U.S. and, and we were doing a missions trip in the Czech Republic. And just over the border in Poland is the concentration camp where Auschwitz was, the biggest concentration camp in Europe. 
And I remember talking to this person who was on my trip, and, and they said it, and at first I thought, well, that's a little extreme. But the more I think about it, the more I think it's true. He said, this is the ultimate example of someone who thinks they know better than God. That a man has decided, or a group of men, or a group of people have decided they know what good is and they know what evil is, and then they are going to then dispatch life and death as they see fit. In the Old Testament world, we had these kings and these rulers and false gods, and today we have dictators, today we have cults, today we have idols, we have money, we have power. So how do we respond? As the church, how do we respond to the condition of sin? How do we do something about it? We love and serve God. We we bow before the Spirit of God in our lives. You know, that passage in Romans, this is exactly what it's saying. Passage in Romans, God is saying, listen, through the Apostle Paul, he's saying, love one another, care for one another, do everything you can for one another. And then he goes into Romans 13 and says, and so give money to Caesar. Give, give all the, yeah, fine. You know, give money, do this so that you can live in peace and love one another. It is not your job to worry about good and evil. It is not your job to judge others. You know, and we worry so much about authority and about power and about what we're going to do in life. You know, you hear these things all the time. And I looked it up and I found a couple of them, but I found this one. He's a guy named J. Lawrence Wilson. He's just a really famous American businessman and been CEO of all these companies and he's in his 80s now. And, you know, they asked him about his success and, and he's, I don't know if he's a Christian, but he said, when I think back over my career... I'm struck that my fondest memories are of people rather than experience, places, or accomplishments. How many older people have you ever heard as they get down the end of their road say, you know, they wish they had worked longer? They wish they had made more money. They wish they had spent a little more time, one more Saturday in the office, you know, just to get ahead. No, we say we wish we had loved more. We wish we had cared more. We wish I had spent more time with people. We wish we had given more. Because that's what's good, and that's what comes from God. Our desire to control and our desire to manipulate and think we can control this idea of sin is so silly. We are all under this curse of sin with a capital S, and we think we can do it on our own. But God has given us all we need. And he says that I am the true king. I am the only king with a capital S because I am the only one who can overcome the condition of sin. And scripture tells us through the table, through the communion, that Jesus was his son and that he was the true king. You know, we see this and, and, and we look at scripture and we see what God is doing. And I'm going to be honest with you, there's a lot of stories in the Bible. I can give you a list of where men think they're like gods and God puts them in their place. Uh, 1 Samuel 15 is a good one. Um, King Saul decided not to obey God. And he took this Canaanite, by the way, the Canaanites are still around later on. He takes this Canaanite king and he spares him. And Samuel, the high priest, gets so mad. You know what Samuel does? He tells Saul, the Spirit of God has left you. Because that was back when the Holy Spirit would come on a person for a time and a place and a specific function. And he tells Saul, you're no longer going to be king. You don't get it. You're not leading well. And then he takes the foreign king and he takes him to Gilgal, which is the place where Joshua and them had Passover. 
where they first started the conquest, and he kills the king of this of these you know the, these Canaanite people. He kills him as a as, as a as a piece of worship to God. You know the evil queen Jezebel. Many of us know her story. You know she was an enemy of Elijah and the prophet. But if you've forgotten how she dies, she actually falls out of a window and gets eaten by dogs. Yeah, it's pretty intense. Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar, God makes him like an ox because he thinks he's like a god. And he actually crawls on his hands and knees and his hair and nails get really long and he eats grass for like four years. Yeah, God humbles people. Acts 12, and if you think it's just Old Testament, it's not. Acts 12, when Herod, someone calls him a god, he doesn't correct them. He gets struck down and eaten by worms. It's all in the Bible. The Bible's awesome. God's very clear about what he thinks when we try to lift ourselves above him. God's very clear that he does not want us assuming control of good and evil. And I believe that God puts people in power. God stops people from being in power. I believe that God is in control. And like we talked about last week at the retreat with Joseph, that God is never surprised, that God is never caught off guard, and that God is never unprepared. Even today, You know, the world we're in seems completely out of control. And let me just say this. I believe God is still in control. I believe God has ordained certain things and we do not understand them. And I don't ever pretend to know why God does what he does. But I know it's better than my plan. Sometimes God, and I say this as an American, sometimes God gives people the leader they deserve based on their actions. Sometimes God raises up, and as I said this about Babylon, Sometimes God actually raises up an evil regime for a greater purpose. It says so in Scripture. I don't know God's big picture. But I do know that when Jesus Christ died for our sins, that God showed that he is a good God. And that even when he does things we don't understand, even when it's 12,000 people and we say, God, I don't understand it and I don't get it, God is still good. And God is the only one who is holy. God is the only one who is just. God is the only one who really knows the difference between good and evil. And we see it at the table of Jesus Christ. And so the question really is not, how could God do this? The question is, do you trust this king with your life? Do you trust this king, this God, the only God, the Lord of lords, the God of gods who gave his life for you? Because he's the only one who can overcome the condition of sin for all of us. He's the only one who can get rid of sin with a capital S and make us clean. So the question really becomes, who is the king of your life? Jesus brought this up very appropriately. We no longer have kings, but we have other things, don't we? And in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said that no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Seems Jesus would know that we wouldn't necessarily struggle with a king one day, but other things. Ours is a different problem altogether. But it's the same that we get to choose who we put in authority over our lives. We get to choose who we will worship. We get to choose what we place as most important in our lives. 
But let me say this as we prepare for communion. Do not fear. Because even though God says, be holy for I am holy, we have attained holiness through Christ's sacrifice. Through Christ's blood and body, we have attained perfection in the eyes of God. And so you do not have to be perfect to go to the king. You just have to admit that you are not perfect to go to the king. Don't claim to be the king. Don't claim to be the king of your life, of your job, of your family. Allow God to take that. Lift up Jesus Christ as the king of your life. Because even though Jesus did not walk the earth as a king 2,000 years ago, he promised us that he would come back as one. And when he returns as a king, um, the Bible is full of difficult things, and I'm fairly certain that we want to be at his feet worshiping him when he returns. And I don't say this because God is the lesser of any two evils or that he's the best choice possible. No, he is the best choice. He is the conqueror of good and evil. He is the ruler of this world. And my prayer for us is that we as a church would see that, that we as a church would know that. And when it comes to the king with a capital K, the Lord with a capital L, God with a capital G, that it would only be the God of Scripture. It's your house, it's your work, with your friends, when you're alone, that God would be the God of the universe and that he would rule and dictate everything for you because only he knows good and evil. Please pray with me. Lord, I give you the power of my life. Lord, we as a church, as your sons and daughters, those who have claimed the name of Jesus Christ, give you the power of our life. And Lord, as a community, we repent of the times we have taken control. We confess that we have clung too tightly to that which we perceive as ours. Lord, you are good. Lord, your mercies endure forever, and we know we are forgiven through the cross of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, for those of us who who claim you as king, who claim Christ as king, Lord, I pray that we would come to the table with humility and with gratitude. And, Lord, for those in this room who may never have claimed you as Lord, who may never have bowed before you as their king, Lord, I pray that they would come to the table tonight in humility and with gratitude. Lord, I don't know why. I don't know how to deal with all the difficult passages in Scripture, Lord, but I know you are good, and I trust you. I look at my life and the things you have done, and I trust you. I hear testimony of those who have gone before me, who have spent their lives following you and reading your word, and I trust you are good. Lord, thank you. As we come to the table tonight, pierce our hearts and pierce our souls with your love and your kindness and your goodness. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. And so...